and welcome to Make Good, the podcast about yarn and knitting from Scratch Supply Co. We're recording today in downtown Lebanon, New Hampshire, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Karen. And I'm Jessica. And today we're going to be talking about superwash wool. So exciting. (laughs) What a mysterious thing. Yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting terminology around the superwash, non-superwash wool situation. Like we get people who come into the store not infrequently who will just say, well, I want wool if they're holding a skein of superwash yarn. And what they're saying to us is they want non-superwash. Right, because yarn that's been superwashed feels different than untreated wool does in your hand. So if you don't have the language for it, you might just pick up a skein of superwash merino and think, well, this doesn't feel like wool. Another thing we hear a lot is, oh, I don't need washable yarn. Right. And okay, I understand what you're saying. Like you don't specifically want superwash, but just so we're all on the same page, all wool is washable. You just need to use different methods. We had somebody say to us one time that it's not like sheep shrink when it rains on them. Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot because they don't. They don't. It rains on sheep all the time and it's going to be fine. You can always wash your fiber somehow. It just might not be in a washing machine. (laughs) Yeah, there's always an answer. (laughs) Or it might be if you're really brave or experimental. So what is superwash or superwashed wool? So superwashed wool is yarn. Hand knitters will most commonly see this as merino. It's a process that happens to other wools as well, like you might see superwashed targi or BFL or something. It's been processed to alter the fiber so that it no longer felts. So on your wool fiber, there are tiny scales, and the process of superwashing either removes these or coats them so that the wool becomes really smooth. And sometimes this process, depending on which technique is used, makes the fiber shiny. Okay. So why? 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 Why does this happen and why doesn't it happen to everything? I suppose (laughs) it doesn't happen to everything because it's not a necessary step to make wool usable in textile production. It doesn't have to happen, but there are benefits to superwashing wool. Sure. But untreated wool is just great too. So most of the superwash wool in the United States specifically, I can't really speak to what's happening in other countries, it's used in commercial textile production and not by us. And when I say us, I mean hand knitters, right? hobbyists, people who are very slowly making their clothing. It's wool that's being used in factories to commercially manufacture garments. And one of the largest users of superwash wool is the United States military. They use it to produce uniforms, sweaters that people enlisted in the military use because of all of wool's great properties. It breathes. It's great in different temperatures. It keeps people dry, which is really important. The wool industry is largely supported by the military in this country. It's what allows wool to be grown here because there is a market for this product. Let's talk about some reasons why you might be attracted to superwash wool, because there are reasons that people choose to use it. The most obvious one is that it's really easy to care for. Right. It is the wool that could be put in the washing machine. It is the wool that, if you're really brave, could be put in the dryer. You could kind of do whatever to it, and it's never going to felt because the barbs have been removed from it. 
And we've talked about this before, too. It's like the shaft of hair with the little bits sticking off of it. And then once it's super washed, those little bits are gone. And so it, it doesn't have the ability to like bind to itself and felt anymore. Have I talked about my weekender sweater that I aggressively washed once? I think so. Yeah. It's in a past episode. But real quick recap, I broke a bad egg on my sweater. <laughs> like it exploded in my hand all over me. And I thought I've made a terrible mistake. So directly off of my body, that sweater went into the washing machine and then went directly into the dryer because I figured at that point it was either going to be fine or it was a goner. And you know what? It was fine and it fit better than it did before because it had kind of stretched out over time. Yeah. Superwash wool tends to be softer to the hand. When you touch the skein, it often feels softer than unsuperwash wool. So people who are like, oh, I really can't wear wool because it's itchy. There are two kinds of people who can't wear wool because it's itchy. One of those kinds of people is allergic to wool. Breakout in hives, histamine reaction to wool. Superwashing will not help those people, but it will help the people whose skin just gets kind of red because it's sensitive. They can probably wear superwash. Mm -hmm. So because superwash wool is smoother, all of those little pokey bits, the scales are either sealed up or gone and the wool feels softer. That means it also has more drape. Because it just kind of hangs. Yes. It doesn't have as much snapback as regular wool does. So the stitches you make with it tend to be just a little bit looser. If you're looking at a pattern that the designer used non-superwash to begin with, make a gauge swatch no matter what. But you may find yourself needing to adjust your needle size to get the gauge that the designer got with non-superwash wool with superwash wool. Or the other way around, too. Mm-hmm. Another difference is that it has softer stitch definition than untreated wool. So I think I spend a lot of time in here talking about nice crisp stitches with, <laughs> with your knitting. Like if you're knitting cables or texture, you want a wool that's really going to make that pop. Unless you don't, because you know we want you to do whatever you want to do. But if you're choosing a superwash wool for a sweater that's got cables all over it or something, those cables will stand in softer relief. They'll be a little bit more subtle than they would be if you had a nice, crisp, I don't know, Targi Columbia blend or something. Nice Cormo. <laughs> and because it doesn't have scales on it anymore, it can sometimes be splittier than untreated wool. One of the functions that the scales perform is the different plies of the fiber adhere together better when there's something grippy to hold on to. Yeah, this is kind of funny because as a knitter, I am aware that when I have used superwash wools, they feel splittier to me than untreated wools, but I hadn't really thought critically about the why right. until I was doing some reading about superwash for this episode, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I know that superwash is not my preferred fiber for color work, for example, because the stitches don't snug up together in the same way that untreated wool does. But I hadn't really thought about the plies within my strand of yarn. But yeah. it's, it's all become very clear to me now. <laughs> the only time I ever really think about plies in yarn are when it's visually apparent. I'm thinking of the plied yarn that we have, right? Oh, sure. It's, the brand is plied, like all yarn is plied. But where it's like two different colors, it's two different plies of yarn and they've been dyed in the wool in two different colors and you can see the difference. And sometimes like Green Mountain Spinnery does this. And that's just happens to be a mill that is about 40 minutes from us. So we're familiar with it. But they don't ply their yarn super tight. 
And so sometimes that will feel splitty to me just because there is a hole. It is possible to make this mistake where you stick your needle right through the fiber. And so therefore I do. Right? Sure. Like some of the <laughs> twists aren't as tight. Yeah. Yeah. Superwash yarn absorbs more water than non-treated wool does. And so it's less warm if you get wet. That's true. Yeah. It feels wet and heavy. Yes. I've definitely been caught out in the rain in that weekender sweater of mine. And oh, wow, does it weigh a ton? And then I'm kind of wet. Right. Which when you're blocking your finished project, you maybe have noticed this where if you put your, I don't know, Rambouillet sweater in the wash and then you come back like five minutes later and it's still kind of floating on the top of the bowl versus your indie dyed superwash sweater that you put in and then you come back five minutes later and it's where you want it to be at that point, which is fully submerged and like Mm -hmm. you want water all the way into the core of the fibers, which is actually one of the reasons dyers really like superwash wool. Yes. So the process of treating wool so that it's super washed makes it so that the fiber has those absorption qualities, which means that they absorb dye better. Not just water, but all of these liquid solutions that get put on your wool. It sucks up the color so that dyers can achieve more saturated tones, much more intense color than you could ever get on a non-treated wool. And it also means that it's adaptable to more techniques. So it's easier to speckle. (laughs) Speckles never die. Right. Yeah, everybody loves a good speckle. And on a super washed wool, you'll get nice little crisp pops of color. On an untreated wool, if you've ever seen speckled yarn, which you don't see as often, dyers just don't do it as frequently, it's because those speckles kind of blur. Yes. They're like... Muddy looking isn't really what I want. It's a different finished aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It just looks different. Right. It makes me think of like if you were ever in an art class as a kid where you took watercolors and you had like a toothbrush or a paintbrush and you kind of rubbed it in your little wet pan of watercolor paint and then flicked it at the paper so there were dots all over the place. Those are like nice crisp speckles. And then if you took a brush that was wet and just kind of ran it across that and it made all of those speckles bleed and kind of get soft looking on the paper, that's what speckling on superwash wool is like. It just kind of spreads. Yeah. Or non-superwash. I'm sorry. I'm telling you stories. So if you're dyeing yarn, if you've never dyed yarn, I'm going to tell you first about a mistake that I made. The first time I ever tried to dye anything, it was fiber. And I had ordered this roving for some reason. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with it because I don't spin. But I was like, I'm going to order this roving and I'm going to try to dye it. And I thought that in order for the dye to penetrate, you had to keep stirring. And so you can just kind of picture like I had this big, (laughs) I had this big pot, right? And it's on this little, I had like a one burner thing that you plug in and it's sitting there. And I had put this roving in there with some dye and I would come back down and the water was very hot and steamy. And I would stir it periodically, and I ended up with some kind of felted blob. A felted blob. (laughs) So the superwash process lets dyers get really high heat without having to worry about felting the yarn if they have to, like, turn it over in the pan or stir it or whatever their technique requires. Also, before you dye yarn, you have to soak the fiber. 
And the reason you have to do that is that water draws water. And so you need the water to have penetrated all the way to the core of the fiber for the dye to sink in like you want it to, which is just a whole lot easier to do with superwash than with non-superwash and is kind of impossible to do in some ways with non-superwash. So what are the benefits of superwash for hand knitters, for the end user? So I think the primary benefit is ease of care. We encounter lots of knitters every day. And when knitters come in thinking about making something for kids, superwash or cotton, the organic cotton that we have, are the first places that we direct them. Because oftentimes these are gift knits. It's not even necessarily for their own live in the house with them personal children that are in their family. It's someone I know is having a baby. Or I have this niece or nephew that I see once a year and my family's coming through and I want to give them a hat so they're comfortable here in October. So we point them to Superwash because often the people in that household with that child are not knitters. And they want to make sure that that gift is cared for in a way that's not going to destroy it. So the machine wash friendliness of Superwash is a huge selling point for people. And the colors. Absolutely, the colors. The dyers like to make the colors and the knitters like to knit with the colors. They wouldn't dye those colors if we weren't all desperate for as many colors as we could get our hands on. <laughs> colors you didn't know existed show up on Indie Dyed Yarn. And it's gorgeous and exciting. And it's kind of a significant part of the joy of making your own clothing. Yes. You can make it look exactly how you want it. You can combine your neutral fawn color with highlighter yellow in ways that you can't get in ready-to-wear clothing. Right. And the speckles, because speckles are the best. Yeah, and it just gives you like a good, dense, squishy, worsted spun yarn. It gives you a different type of yarn than you're able to have with non-superwash. It just does. Mm-hmm. So this all sounds lovely and great, but the process of superwashing yarn, traditionally, historically, most commonly, is kind of tied up in a lot of environmental issues. Okay, so that being said, what kind of process are we talking about? What chemicals? What's the deal? Okay, so the most common superwash method that's used in wool production in this country is called the chlorine Hercocet process. And chlorine is used in two basic forms. It's either used as chlorine gas or a chlorine solution, which is liquid. Chlorine is used to remove the scales of the fibers of the wool. When gas is used, this has the most potential for really unsafe working conditions for the people who are actually making the superwash process happen. Chlorine gas is not great to be around, as, <laughs> as you may be aware. Chlorine solution is much safer for people working in those facilities, and it's also easier to be filtered from wastewater. One of the things that the superwash process does is it uses a huge amount of water in treating the wool, which has environmental impacts in a number of ways because it's using that resource, but also it creates dirty water. So there needs to be like additional steps taken kind of depending on where the production facility is to get that water to a state where it can be, I don't know, I guess released from the facility. Yeah. 
because it doesn't just stay in the building. <laughs> but trying to clean that up is a big process. And I think that from what I understand from my reading, some places do a better or not so great job of that, depending on local regulations. So as a little side note, in the store, when we were building out our location, mm -hmm. we have a little dye studio. And because we knew that we wanted to be able to have dye classes, and what we were picturing was like six people with two skeins of yarn each. This is not a factory style production. We did talk about this with our landlord to make sure that we had like outlets and sinks and everything where we wanted them to be. And being the overcautious, really thorough person that he is, he filed a permit with the city for us to open like a textile manufacturing facility. Which, which was maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> an overestimation of what we were envisioning for ourselves. Right. And it was a really involved process. It would have involved a bunch of inspections and like people from the state coming in. And we were like, no, no, it's Easter egg. It's like dyeing Easter eggs. We're, we're using vinegar, maybe right. citric acid, which think Sour Patch Kids people, not like right. <laughs> huge vats of something with like big X's and like skull and crossbones <laughs> on the container. You know, these things are in your kitchen anyways. Right. That is not the case for the superwash process right. where the chemicals are not equivalent to Easter egg dye. Right. And it's the kind of thing that they're going to need to be working closely with wherever they're located, like whoever's in charge of the water treatment for wherever the facility is located to make sure that what they are doing before it leaves the building is going to be safe to process through whatever the water treatment process in that place is. Okay. So back to changing this yarn. Mm -hmm. Once the chlorine treatment happens, you have to do another step. The yarn has to be sealed. And this is where potentially the shininess might come from Oh yeah, in your superwash yarn. It's coated with a polymer and that smooths out the fiber. This, I learned, is the same polymer that's used to treat paper. Oh, which, interesting. What? It had never even occurred to me that paper, like your notebook paper, your printer paper, has a polymer coating on it. And it does that so if your paper gets wet, it doesn't dissolve back into pulp. Whoa. Yeah, what? I feel like a part of my brain is engaged right yeah. now. <laughs> there are more things I should be wondering about that I'm just not on a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis. <laughs> like that joke about how if you got sent back in time and people would ask you questions and you'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I don't know how I don't know how it works. <laughs> I don't know that joke, but OK. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in this process. And I can tell you that from the reading that I did, a lot of it is not layperson friendly. Right. It's either very technical, industry specific, like the chemists and the engineers wrote this paper, and I don't know what any of these words mean, or it's proprietary and we're not telling you the details of the process. So it's kind of difficult to suss out information that feels accessible and useful to the hand knitter right? versus I own a textile manufacturing plant and I know these things. So this is where we're at. There's chlorine, there's polymers, there are environmental and human health risks involved. And at the end of the day, once the process is complete, you don't have to worry about you personally being at risk touching a skein of superwashed yarn. Oh, no, no. Like the end product that's created through this process is safe. It's just kind of a not ideal path to get there. Right. Just like you don't worry about your paper. 
Right. Who did that even occur to? (laughs) Clearly not me. And as a hand knitter, getting information about the superwash process used in your yarn, not so easy. It's not part of your learning process as you become a knitter. It's not listed on your ball bands. It'll say that it's superwash merino, but it's not telling you anything about whether it was the chlorine hercocet process or some other superwash process that exists. And it's generally not going to be on your yarn producer's website, whether that's a big commercial mill or a little indie dyer working with like two pots at home. If you go to their website or their Etsy page or wherever you find them, that information is not readily available. And they might not even know. Right. It feels like a fine thing to shoot an email and be like, hey, do you happen to know about the production of the fiber that I bought from you or I'm considering buying? But don't be shocked if they don't have an answer because that information is not necessarily available to them in an easily consumable way either. But it never hurts to ask if you're curious. So if you're looking for a way to identify yarn that has a lower impact process, what do you want to do? Fortunately, these exist, and I think that more and more will start to be available too. What you want to do is look for some keywords because there are yarns that have had a finishing process done, and that process is not called superwashing. I don't know if superwashing is one of those things like an elevator, you know, or Kleenex. Like these, <laughs> these terms have become like vernacular, but they're, they mean a very specific thing. They started out meaning just the elevators made by this specific company, but now all lifts, I suppose, are called elevators. And I know we have some folks who are not in the U.S. who are listening to this, and this tends to vary by country. Right. But it's like where a specific brand name for something has become the name for the whole category of thing. So in the U.K., you might Hoover. Hoover's just a make a vacuum, right? Like that's a company that makes a vacuum. Or yeah, mm-hmm. like Kleenex, any facial tissue. Right. Could go, you could go to our local grocery store and buy a box of Kleenex made by Puffs. Right. (laughs) So I don't know if the term superwash is like that or not, but you can find machine washable wool yarns that have not been superwashed with the chlorine hergeset process or some other like high environmental impact kind of toxic processing. You are going to be looking for words like machine washable instead of superwash wool. It might say machine washable wool. Also, another like big, I'm going to say green flag for you. It's not a red flag. Don't worry about this. Like this is the good thing is if you see machine washable in conjunction with organic or GOTS certified. GOTS is the Global Organic Textile Standard, which has a huge number of qualifiers that fiber needs to meet to be certified from how the animals are cared for down to making the end user product. So if you see organic or got certified and it's machine washable, that wool has been treated with one of these environmentally friendly green processes, for lack of a better way to refer to them. We have a link that we'll put in the show notes to a cool little video from GOTS about textiles, and it's just kind of neat and animated, and I thought you might like to see it. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, the actual word superwash won't be used, but you'll see something brand specific, like the company O-Wool uses a process they call O-Wash to denote their low-impact processing. 
So I tried to dig to learn more about environmentally friendly wool finishing. And I will tell you that much like the not environmentally friendly wool finishing, (laughs) it's a lot of this information is proprietary. So which fair, I'm sure it's very competitive within the textile industry, like finding new ways to process things. And they're just not telling very clearly. And it's also difficult when you are finding these descriptions of processes on like companies' websites to suss out whether or not this process is used specifically for commercially produced textiles or if it is relevant in any way to yarn that is made for hand knitters. Oh, sure. Because they just don't specifically talk about it. They talk about wool broadly, but I don't know if that wool is going to be turned into blankets or if it's going to be turned into a skein of yarn that will eventually end up in a yarn shop. Yeah, on the scale of commercial manufacture, and I'm not talking about your sort of local fiber mill, or even your not particularly local fiber mill, like Harrisville is a really big mill, but on the scale of global manufacture, nobody's thinking about hand knitters. Like, they're just not. Most wool fiber is not going into a skein of yarn that's going to sit on a shelf in a yarn shop. It is going to become something else. Mm -hmm. So since we just mentioned O-Wool, I will tell you I learned about them a little bit. Owash uses a GOTS certified organic compound to create washability. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently, this organic compound holds the wool fibers in place during washing and drying, so it prevents them from interlocking when there's agitation in the washing machine, so their wool doesn't shrink or felt. Do you feel like you know more now? (laughs) I I do feel like I know more. I feel like I couldn't reproduce it. If I got, for example, dropped into the 1860s, I'd be in bad trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Karen, your job (laughs) is to bring this process to this different time. (laughs) Good luck. Yeah. Not that much information. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jessica, what on earth is plasma wool? Hmm. Glad you asked, Karen. (laughs) So I found a company, a process. It's called, I think this is like trademark registered name, Nature Tech's Plasma Wool. And it uses a process that combines electricity and air to electrocharge wool, and it alters the fibers to reduce the scales without damaging the wool. Right. That's cool. Yeah. I'm... Here's what I'm picturing. Stunned. (laughs) If you ever, when you were a kid, were near one of those, like, science learning, like, we had a, it was like a science museum. Yeah. And they had that big metal ball that you put your hand on and it makes your hair stand up. I think it's kind of like that. That's what I'm picturing is just somebody like waving yarn <laughs> by one of those. <laughs> yes. I Yes. We're just going to envision that that's how it happens. So I was able to find less about what this actually looks like, but more about what it doesn't look like. So there's no water involved in this process, which it involves electricity, so probably good. <laughs> um, good choice. <laughs> It's fine. (laughs) And there's also no resin used in the process. And I think that when they refer to resin, maybe this is where we have encountered the phrase polymer in traditional processing. So there's no like coating put on the wool. It is just this electrocharged plasma wool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
which feels, I don't know, like magic, basically. (laughs) And the wool that's being treated in this way, in this nature text plasma process, it's widely being used in machine washable sportswear textiles. So maybe you're like, I don't want to say smart socks because I don't know if like the smart wool company uses this process specifically. But like if you go to the local running store and you get some cool machine washable wool socks, it's possible that this process has been used or like your long underwear or other wool things that people wear when they're doing their outside in the sunshine stuff. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. It's electricity. <laughs> and, and we hope no water at the same time. Yeah, no water. They made that very clear. What about EXP? I love EXP mostly <laughs> because I loved finding out that EXP stands for explosion. <laughs> Maybe in another life I will have a job just coming up with names for interesting things and processes. Yes. Because <laughs> that's kind of fun. So this is a process that does not use chlorine and instead it uses natural salts as oxidizing agents to finish the wool. So what kind of salts? Don't know. (laughs) Natural ones. (laughs) Natural ones. And on their website, I did find a kind of cool diagram that illustrates what wool fiber looks like when it's felted and what wool fiber looks like when it's super washed and is treated with like a polymer coating and what the expolution, the EXP wool, <laughs> looks like after their processing. And it's all different. So I thought that was kind of cool. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So you can go peek at it too. Okay, so what if after hearing all of this or learning more about all of this process, you want to get away from using traditionally superwashed wool, but you have a lot of it in your stash? I would say use it. Oh, yeah. The wool already exists. You have it. It's material available to you. You spent money on it. And at this point, because it exists, there is no additional layer of environmental impact, like detrimental environmental impact occurring because you take it from a skein and turn it into a hat or a scarf or a sweater. It's still there. Make it usable, I think. Or if you really just don't want to use it, Find someone who will. Like we've talked about ways to donate wool from your stash that you aren't going to use in past episodes. So like find a little free craft library, give it to an art center, find somewhere to put it. And we've talked about this before also when it comes to the issue of like personal responsibility and what we are buying and consuming. I think especially in the U.S., there's a lot of responsibility put on the end user of a product that doesn't really belong to the end user of the product, right? Sure. We should all be making our personal choices in ways that feel comfortable to us. But at the end of the day, none of us in our lifetimes are going to hand knit as much as the U.S. military put through their manufacturing probably this week. Like, oh, no, not, no chance. <laughs> right? We don't need to drive ourselves nuts trying to make all of the right choices all of the time. It's not a right or wrong choice situation. It's a, what is the end product that you're hoping to produce? hmm Hey, Jessica, what's on your needles right now? Oh, so I'm still knitting my Rhinebeck sweater. I thought I would be done by now, but <laughs> I'm a slow sleeve knitter. So I am very slowly striping my sleeves. And also, 
I think that part of the reason that my sleeves are going slowly for me is that I don't know how I want to finish them. I'm finding that this is the drawback of not having a pattern to refer to. Sure. Like, I have to imagineer what this sweater is going to look like, (laughs) and then I have to make that happen. So the body of my sweater is like a rolled hem. I didn't want to do ribbing at the bottom because I did like a rolled neckline, and that's fine and lovely. And I think I might do the same for the sleeves. But like now my question is, do I want full length sleeves? Do I want them bracelet length, three quarters? And how much decreasing do I want? I have lots of things to consider and I'm right above my elbow. So I'm going to have to start making choices fast. So I'm thinking this process for you is a little bit like when you're knitting along with a pattern and you get to a point where you think you want to modify Mm -hmm. and it kind of grinds to a halt. While you make a decision, except you're having to do that at every stage in creating the sweater. Yeah, it's very like I have created a choose your own adventure scenario for myself, (laughs) but I also have to think about what all the scenarios are. So lots of respect to you, knitwear designers, because there are so many things to consider. Like my options are endless. How do I choose just one? You know what this has turned into for me? It is the what are we having for dinner? Oh, no. That's a little bit what these (laughs) sleeves feel like. Like, what are we having for dinner? I don't know. I'm just going to have to make a choice. Right. We have to eat tonight. (laughs) Oh, but it's going good. I'm excited about it. Maybe I'll post some pictures soon. What's on your needles, Karen? My Cladonia, and it is starting to fly. So I am at the end. I know. I know. (laughs) I feel like everybody's sick of hearing about this sweater. I'm a little bit sick of thinking about this sweater. But I just got to the end of all of the charts on the top part of the body. So there's a big, I've split for the sleeves. There's a big chunk of just like one color stockinette knitting. And can I tell a superwash story? Please do. So I am knitting this with Indie Dyed Superwash yarn. I am loving the yarn that I'm knitting it with. I took too long to transition my cable to the longer cable when moving down from the neckline. And there are a bunch of rows in this sweater that are three-color color work that I think I have affectionately complained about in previous episodes. And scrunched up on a too-short cord, I messed up my tension. I had, like, tight, puckery fabric, which I realized when I finally moved it to a longer cord. And I've been low-key freaking out about this for, like, three weeks. Low-key is... <laughs> There's been a lot of furrowed brows and, like, mad faces at this sweater. Right. So just like a couple days ago, I got out our steamer and Mm -hmm. I steam blocked, I steam blocked the top part of the sweater. (laughs) I also completely just dumped water on the sweater. So I also wet blocked about six square inches of the sweater. Yeah. (laughs) Hot tip. Don't tip your upright steamer if it's shaped like a tea kettle because the water will pour out of it. Right. Yeah. And it relaxed and it was great. And you know what? If I'd been using non-superwash wool, I would have been in bad trouble. But because I was using superwash indie dyed, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. It was a relief that you finally did that. I was worried about your well-being with the faces (laughs) you were making at this sweater. And I was like, Karen, block it. I think I'm just going to keep knitting for a while. This conversation happened a couple of times. Oh, like repeatedly for days and days and days. Because I was like, until I do this, I can tell myself that it will work. And if, after I do it, I learn that it did not, in fact, work, I have a really emotionally fraught frogging experience in front of me. Mm -hmm. I'm glad it worked. (laughs) Hey, Jessica. Yes, Karen. 
Are you ready? Oh, I'm always ready. I got a letter for you. Yay! Our letter this week is very short, and it comes from Goda. Hi, Goda. Could you please explain how a knit-along works? Oh, I sure can. So I, I'm going to interject. She didn't actually say knit-along. She said K-A-L. Mm-hmm. So that's what K-A-L stands for. It's knit-along. Knit-a-long. Sometimes you'll see C-A-L, and that could stand for crochet along or craft along. You've got options. But we're going to talk about knit-alongs. That's what the question was, and knitting is mostly what we do. So knit-alongs kind of distilled down to their essence are like social group knitting endeavors. A bunch of people decide to get together in person or virtually or in a space where they can just connect to check in with each other periodically. And they are knitting a project within a kind of range of parameters. We have hosted a couple of knit-alongs here through the podcast. We knit a penguono where everyone was working on the same project. We knit the sorrel. We did a make-good sorrel knit-along. And there were three different versions of the sorrel. So they got to choose which version they wanted to knit. And then our most recent one was our Jesse made-along. So we picked a designer and we said, make anything that she has designed. So that was really broad. And people knit all sorts of different things, shorts and tank tops and T-shirts and sweaters. They had a lot to choose from. But you might find that a knit-along hosted elsewhere is we're all going to knit something purple. Pick your purple project. So basically, there's some sort of framework, a theme, a designer, a particular project, particular fiber, something. There is a period of time. Knit-alongs are not endless. Generally, there is a start date and there is an end date. And then from there, it gets kind of murky. You can do anything. It could be a knit-along just organized by a group of friends so that you're all working on similar or the same projects and it's social entirely. There's no other component to it. It could be hosted by us and We cheer you on and we love seeing your things and we want to engage with your pictures on Instagram. And at the end, we randomly select somebody to win a prize. It could be hosted by a dyer or the designer and there are any number of other details that go into it. It could be that you're knitting together to wear your project to an event like a Rhinebeck sweater where people in groups decide to all knit the same thing And then they're going to meet up under the tree at Rhinebeck to take a big group photo of everyone wearing the same thing. So knit-alongs are opportunities to engage with other knitters. They're fun. They're supposed to be fun. They shouldn't be stressful. They're social. And it's a way to share the creative process, to share our handcraft with one another. What about like a mystery knit-along? There's a big mystery knit-along happening right now. Oh, yes. So Stephen West is currently hosting a Mystery Knit-Along, and other designers do this too. Mystery Knit-Alongs are fun if 
you have the personality type that allows you to not know what's going to happen next. Right. So I have never participated in a mystery knit along, but the conversation I see come up around them every time anybody ever hosts one is basically people who are either very enthusiastic about the idea or people who are like, I could never knit something without knowing what it's going to be at the end. That's way too stressful. It's not for me, which I think same. I don't think I have that personality type. That's self-aware. Yeah. That's, that's a valuable <laughs> thing. I find mystery knit-alongs appealing. I haven't done one, but I always think about it. And generally, like, you have a category idea of what you're making. I don't think anyone's going to surprise knit a sweater. You just start knitting and you end up with a sweater because everybody's body is shaped different and a different size. Like, you would need dramatically different yardages. So sweater mystery knit-alongs can happen. I suppose, but you will know that it's a sweater project going into it. Right, right. I think that most frequently you see shawl projects as mystery knit-alongs. There'll be some number of colors. Part of the fun is picking out your palette and getting to be surprised at how these colors get put together or what surprise technique is coming next. And generally the designers release those pattern instructions on a schedule. So you get basic information, like you know how much yardage you need, you know what type of yarn you need, you know what kind of needles and notions, and then you're kind of drip-fed pieces of the pattern, and you're kind of knitting within that time period and trying to keep up so you're ready for when the next piece of the pattern is released. I don't know if other designers do this, but when Stephen West does his mystery knit-alongs, he doesn't even call them pattern pieces. He just calls them clues, which I do find really appealing. So I don't know. I don't know where I land on this. So fun. <laughs> yeah, so there are lots of different types of knit alongs. I feel like there's a knit along type out there for every knitter. And if you haven't participated in one, I would strongly recommend it. I think they're fun. We're going to do another one after Rhinebeck here, like us, which may or may not be the type that works for you. We're going to get through October, the bulk <laughs> of October, and all of the things we have going on. And then at the end of the month, or beginning of November, sometime soon, we will release our next Knit Along's details. We're excited to have you join us. I think that might be it for us this week. Let's see. You are listening to us right now, so you've found us somewhere. But if you haven't yet subscribed, go subscribe to the Make Good Podcast. And if you wish you could find us somewhere else, and you can't, let us know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you should rate and review us. Tell your friends. It will help other knitters find us. We love talking with all of you. We want there to be more of you. You can follow us on Instagram if you want to see what we're up to. That's where we host our knit-alongs because it's really visual. It's an easy way for us to all share pictures with each other. Just using the hashtags allows you to follow along. We are on Instagram as MakeGoodPod. You can also support us on Patreon. We have a Patreon now. We share pictures of all sorts of shenanigans and <laughs> exciting new yarn, and we try to give you little peeks at things. It's fun. And you can go to our website, makegoodpod.com. Oh, can I say a side thing about our show notes? Yes, you can say whatever you want. So we're always like, hey, we link this in the show notes. I don't know how it works on like an Android, but whatever your <laughs> podcast app is, Usually if you like swipe or something, you can see the show notes. You can also see the show notes on our website, mm -hmm. which I like just learned, which is makegoodpod.com. So if you like want to go back and watch that video or whatever, you can do that. 
Also, we have a little contact form there. So while we're always happy to receive your questions via direct email using deerscratch at scratchsupplyco.com, you can also just pop your question into the contact form. If somehow you don't remember that email address, you can still reach us. We hope to hear from you soon. Bye.